turning things on. I just get up and talk. But as a professor of accounting, things always have to add up. The problems are full of numbers that mean something to a lot of different people. And they all have to add up. You can't have things that end in some sort of a disagreeing factor. It has to balance. The nice thing is that I always have a solutions manual. So that if I get turned around or upside down, all I've got to do is turn to the solution manual. And there it is, right there. Black and white numbers, they add up. The Excel spreadsheet does the work for me. I like that. Preaching the word, yeah, I still have the solution manual. Unfortunately, well, it is in black and white, a little bit of red, but that's good in the word. Red in accounting is not good. Um, but there is no problem just specifically laid out that says this is how you do it and this is the answer you come up with and when you get there, you're good. So there's a lot of insight uh, that you have to ask for. When Mitch first uh, asked me if I would do this, Yes. And then I looked at the date and I thought, oh, well, it's uh, at the end of shorter spring break and the beginning of berry spring break, so I won't have any students there. It's also the day the time changes and everybody's going to forget to set their clock, so there'll be even fewer there. And it's on deception, which he probably doesn't want to talk about anyway. So, unfortunately, there are a lot of people here uh, this morning, or fortunately, as the case may be. I'd like for us to pray um, and just ask the Lord to do something, okay? Father, we all bow before you. Uh, You are the author of the solution manual. And I ask you, O Lord, to bring forth your truth. I ask that you would show forth answers to our problems and that you would meet us where we are. And so often we ask you to join us, which I really think is wrong. You are here. And so, Father, we come to join you. And I ask that you would accomplish your purpose as your word has said. And that, Father, you would do in our hearts and in our lives what you have declared. That you, Father may be honored and glorified above all things. And it's in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. There's a quote that I uh, found in doing some research for this, and it's a good thing you set that clock. Not that it's going to mean anything, but you can set it. I promise I'm going to try. My family has laughed about ending in 30 minutes, but we're going to give it a whirl. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Often thought uh, from Shakespeare, not so. From Sir Walter Scott, 1808, a poem, Marmion. We often think that things have been declared by a person in a certain way for a certain thing, only to find out later that, well, that's just not the case at all. And we have to be corrected. I enjoy the arts, especially theater. Whether it's a play, a movie, a musical, and yes, I love opera. I find myself being transported into the story, identifying with certain characters, and pulling from the storyline applicable truths 
for my life. From first grade through college and even after college, I signed up for every theater production I could possibly sign up for. Never had a large role, which was really quite okay, but I just got to be a part of the story. What we're looking at this morning, Genesis 26, 34 through 28, 9, is a play. It's a story. There are characters. There's a plot. There's an attempt to thwart what's going on, but it all works out in the end. Ross, in his exposition of Genesis, creates an outline that resembles a play. He calls it a prologue followed by two acts with three scenes each and then an epilogue. So using this outline helped me as I worked through this this passage. And I hope that it will help you follow the story. Pause between the scenes and acts to reflect and to apply biblical principles that God reveals. So I'm going to give you very quickly what the stages are. You can just write down the scripture passages. And uh, I'm going to be out of town for a few days. When I get back and I get all the grammar corrected in here and whatever, I'll give it to them. They can post it online if you're interested uh, in it. Uh, Grammar is important. Even if you are an accountant, grammar is important. Amen. Thank you. So... um, The title is Deception for the Blessing. The prologue we find in Genesis 26, 34 to 35. Act 1 is the deception. And that occurs in Genesis 27, 1 through 29. Act 2 is distress. Within the family, or I like to subtitle it, the effects of disobedience and deception. And that's Genesis 27, 30 through 28, 5. And the epilogue is Esau's revenge and removal. Genesis 28, 6 to 9. Romans 14.23 says, Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. In the prologue, or what I like to call the backstory for this, there are four main characters, but they never appear all together in any one scene of the story. They appear generally in pairs. There's Isaac and Esau, Rebecca and Jacob, Isaac and Rebecca, and Isaac and Jacob. We never find the brothers showing up together. And it's important, I think it was as Ross said, there are no heroes here. Only sinners, all four of them. In Genesis 25.3, God plainly told of his divine election of Jacob as the one to receive the blessing. Henry Morris, in his book, The Genesis Record, remarks that although the customary blessing always went to the firstborn son, 
We should also remember that neither Seth, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, or others were firstborn. And there may be many others that we don't know anything about. The sovereignty of God is on full display and can never be overlooked. And if that doesn't wreck you now, it will. In Malachi 1, 1 through 3, God says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how hast thou loved us? This is God's response. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. And you may think, so what does that have to do with anything? It has to do with the fact Jacob was chosen, Esau was not. And in God's love and providence, he displayed to future generations, I'm blessing you through the one I chose. You might have chosen Esau because he was the number one son. I know. And I chose, and it is for your good, for my glory, and you need to rejoice in that. In Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated Genesis 26, 34, 35 serves us well. Not only does this little short two-verse passage reveal a snippet of Esau's heart towards the things of God, it also gives some insight into Isaac and Rebekah's heart and mind. We know in Genesis 25, 27 to 28 that the family had divisions. That's a problem. Isaac and Esau always refer to together. Rebekah and Jacob always refer to together. Esau at 40 married two women, both of whom were Hittites. And if you remember our journey thus far through Genesis, the Hittites were a group of people whom God had made enemies of Israel. They were not to have anything to do with them, intermarry with them, or anything. Esau not only had been disobedient, but his wives made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. 
Yet they continued to live with Isaac and Rebekah. That might be a problem. I find it strange that Isaac, who had been forbidden by Abraham to marry anyone from Canaan, allowed his son to marry outside the family or outside of the faith, if you will. And whether he gave his blessing or not is really irrelevant. The fact remains that he explicitly or implicitly permitted it and continues to permit it is problematic. These women brought much grief and heartache to both Isaac and Rebekah. The curtain closes on the epilogue and we're left. And now we prepare for Act 1. We find in Genesis 27... One Now, it came about when Isaac was old, his eyes were too dim to see. The curtain opens. And we find in this scene the disobedience of both Isaac and Esau in verses 1 to 5. Isaac is old, and you can follow along with me uh, through this. Isaac is old. In fact, he's close to 100 years old by this point. His eyes are dim or failing in his old age. He loves venison stew. And it's interesting that Jacob has generally been the one who cooked it. But Esau always brought what was to be cooked. Venison. He says he does not know when he's going to die. So he wants to eat. So that my soul may bless you before I die. And that word soul. The connotation there is that it is from the depths of his being that he wants to give. It's not like I just want to bless you. It is I want to give you everything I am. Everything I have. I want to pass along to you that which my father gave to me. Which God had given to him. You are the posterity of the nation. That's the implication. Rebecca hears and Esau leaves for the field to go hunt. This ought to bring back a memory of an earlier account of Jacob's cooking. Esau comes in hungry, sells his birthright for a pot of stew. I doubt that Esau had forgotten the earlier travesty, but here he thinks that despite Jacob getting the birthright, he's also going to, he can now get the blessing, the stuff, the inheritance, the material wealth. The difference here is these are two separate items, though connected, And he fails to see it. It's his chance, he thinks, to recover the birthright and get the blessing. And in his foolishness, he thought that by getting the blessing, he could recover that which he had lost, the birthright. Both Isaac and Rebekah knew God's plan that Jacob was to receive the blessing. Isaac, because of his preference of Esau over Jacob, had decided to give the blessing to Esau, a direct disobedient act. And it appears that he and Esau had a love for earthly things that they allowed to take precedence over godly things. To say that Isaac was old or forgetful or couldn't see or to come up with any other kind of excuse for his behavior is to simply miss the point. God had been very clear. But Isaac is deciding to choose another way. To accomplish God's purpose. 
in scene two, which is in verses six to 17, here's what we find. Rebecca, knowing that she's heard, goes and tells Jacob what she's heard and conceives a plan to deceive. And she says to go get two kids from the flock. Now, goats and deer are different. I'm assuming they taste different. I've had venison, have not had goats, but I'm just assuming they're different. Nevertheless, she is going to prepare the stew this time that his father likes, but she wants Jacob to take it to him. And Jacob has some concerns. Esau's hairy. I'm a smooth man. Not in that sense of the word. If discovered, Isaac is going to curse him and not bless him. And here's something that absolutely smacked me. Rebecca says to him, let the curse be on me. We take it as a simple statement. Calvin, in his commentary, states, she presumptuously subjects herself to the curse in his stead. That can never happen. Matthew Henry comments that no one can take the curse for another except Jesus. Thus, her presumption was that she could deliver Jacob of the divine curse. But she failed to see that both would have been guilty of the sin and both subjected to the curse. No one can take the curse and grant absolution other than Christ. Rebecca continues her little scheme. Because Jacob had said, I'm smooth. She takes the skin of the goats. This ought to really bring up all kinds of images for you. She takes the the skin of the goats and she puts them on him. So that it appears as if he's hairy. She also clothes him in Esau's finest clothes that were in her house. Holly Bill. Matthew Henry suggests that, quote, we must come in the garments of our elder brother, Christ Jesus, clothed in his righteousness, who is the firstborn among many brethren. There's no covering, no garments we can ever clothe ourselves in that will make us right or righteous before the Father. It's just not going to happen. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, goats, although parts of the sacrificial system, were also the ones on whom the curse was laid for the sin of the nation, and they were sent out. No covering for sin other than that of the Lamb. Jacob complies. Griffith Thomas in his book says, Righteousness can never be laid aside, even though our object is more righteous. What they were trying to achieve was righteousness, but they were doing it apart from righteousness. And the means does not justify the end. And in this case, the end was tainted before they ever even started. 
In scene three, we actually find the theft of the blessing, verses 18 to 29. And we find in this particular passage that there are four lies that are told. Some say three. I found four. Lie one. Isaac asks him who he is. And Jacob responds quickly with, I am Esau, your firstborn. Get up and eat so you can bless me. I'm sure there was a little bit of haste on his part because he did not want to stay there too long because he was sure he was going to be found out. So hurry up, Dad. Get up, eat, and bless me, and let's get this over with. That's basically what he was saying. Isaac asks, this is lie number two, how did this happen so quickly? And Jacob responded with, A blasphemous statement, actually. The Lord your God caused it to happen to me. God didn't cause anything to happen to him. He and his mama concocted a plan, and they put it together and put it into place. And it wasn't venison. It was goats. It's interesting that Jacob also says, the Lord your God. He does not refer to God here in first person as if it belongs as if he belongs to God. Isaac in line number 3 bids him to come closer so that he can touch him and feeling the hair but still not yet quite convinced because the voice is different. He says, "Are you really my son Esau?" Jacob answered, "I am." Line number 4. Isaac asks him to bring the stew for him to eat and wine to drink. And after after Isaac gets his fill of the meal, he says, come closer. And Jacob obeyed. Isaac wanted to smell the clothes, which would have undoubtedly smelled like Esau, like of the hunt before continuing. The lie is that Jacob was clothed in another's clothes. You don't get in wearing anybody else's clothes. Jesus is clothes, all you need. Abraham, I mean, Isaac then gives the blessing in verses 27 to 29. And if you compare it to what the blessing was that Abraham gave to Isaac and that God gave to Abraham, you will find they're virtually identical. Promising, basically, you get it all. You get it all. And the curtain closes and act two begins. And now we find distress and the effects of disobedience. In scene one, this is in verse 30 through 28, verse 5. Jacob leaves and Esau immediately arrives. I just love God's sense of humor. Esau this time actually cooked the stew and brings it to his dad and asks for the blessing. Isaac, a bit confused, says, who are you? He says, well, I'm Esau, your firstborn. At that point, Isaac realizes he's been tricked. And he trembles in his rage. Barnhouse remarks, before a great, I love this, before a great work of grace, there must be a great earthquake. He asks, so who brought him game to eat before? He didn't even know that it was goat, not venison. That ought to tell you something. He's not paying attention. He says, but I have blessed him and he shall surely be blessed. This is a faith statement that is basically saying, I have blessed him and the blessing is irrevocable. 
I remember a time when Mitch Jolly came to my office to ask me a, a question. I'm going, he can tell you the story himself if he wants to. But my question to him was, or my statement in my question was, my understanding is the gifts and calling of God are, irre- are irrevocable. When did God change his mind concerning you? He can tell you the rest of the story if he wants to. Esau's angst in asking for his father's blessing. And Isaac acknowledges the deceit of Jacob. Esau says, Jacob took away my birthright, now the blessing. Well, he's true on the second count, but he's not right about the first count. He sold the first one, willingly, gave it away. He treated the birthright flippantly, but decides, oh, now I can get it all back. No. Isaac states, Jacob is now Esau's master. All relatives are, are now his servants. And that he has given him all the grain and the new wine that is the inheritance as well. Esau begs for a blessing. Isn't there something left for me? And Isaac gives him an anti-blessing. It's one of subjugation, one of hard work. No blessing from heaven, one of war and swords and a desire to break away from Jacob all together. In verses 41 to 45, we find that Esau bears the grudge. As we've already said this morning in our scripture passages about forgiving others as God has forgiven us. Esau fails to do that and bears the grudge. And he even states when his father dies, which he assumes will be soon, he will get revenge. Interesting thing is, Isaac lived for another 40 years or more after this. You don't know when you're going, and neither do I. And to make plans for future, either for blessing or cursing, stupid. Rebecca hears, makes a plan for Jacob, and then she says, you need to go to my brother Uh, in Haran, and stay a few days, like it's going to be a weekend trip. And she says, and I'll send for you. I don't know how far away away it was, but it wasn't going to be a weekend. In fact, it turned out to be 20 years, when we have no knowledge that Rebecca ever saw Jacob again. In the last scene, Isaac agrees, because Rebecca's gone to him, and she says, I don't think I can stand it. If this son marries a Canaanite woman, she's already got two daughters-in-law that she has good reason for saying that. Isaac agrees and says, you need to go to Rebecca's father's house and take a wife from Laban's household. That is Rebecca's brother. At this point, he actually pronounces the blessing, puts it into place and sends him on his way. Faith. It appears that Isaac is over his rage, realizing that he was in error, that he had sinned, and now he submits to God's plan. We also find in Scripture that Isaac wasn't anywhere near death. He lived another 40 or so years and even lived to see Jacob come back. So what happened? The epilogue. In verses in chapter 28, verse 6 to 9, Esau sees Isaac bless Jacob. He sees him sending him away for protection. 
and commands him to not take a wife from Canaan. Jacob, he sees, obeys his father and mother and leaves. What was Esau's response? He sees that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father and he did the most unthinkable thing. It was bad enough that he had taken two wives from the Hittites. He goes to Ishmael's house and marries one of Ishmael's daughters. He joined the wrong team. That's why I called it his removal. He got his revenge, but in doing so, he lost far more than he could have ever imagined. So, to try to finish up, I want to read a passage out of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 to 17. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. So what do we learn? I just came up with a list of questions that we could ask ourselves. If we truly believe that God is sovereign, then do we really believe that he's going to carry out his plan? And if we believe that, do we act accordingly, or do we come up with another idea? Do we take heed and remember what he has declared to you? I don't know about you, but in my life, there have been times where God has told me this. It is up to me to remember this. He told Israel, wear it on the frontals, on your forehead, keep it ever before you. And though he was referring to the law, the law was God's declaration. This is how it's supposed to be. So do we remember what God has told us? Do we in some way put earthly pursuits ahead of divine decrees? Unfortunately, you're right, Miss Georgia. God does not act on our timetable. And that is a huge ouch for me. Many a dream and many a plan I have waited and waited and waited and waited all my life for have not yet come to pass. That God has not yet told me no. And to those promises I will cling until I draw my dying breath. If we really believe, do we wait for him to act? Or do we interpret his decree to fit our own agenda? Isaac determining, oh, it's going to be Esau. Do we concoct plans and schemes to make what we think God's will is, or even what his declared will is, happen? Rebecca, 
planning to make it right when Isaac was wrong. This act that says that God is not able to accomplish what he said he would do, which is truly doubt and unbelief. God was very gracious to me one day when he said, Dub, I do not need your help. Get down off my throne. I don't like it when other people are up on my throne. It's mine and mine alone. Do we go along? Oh, this is a bad one. Do we go along with others' plans because they accomplish a desired end even though the means are wrong? Putting ourselves in the place of God. Do we as Rebecca think we can absolve the sin in the place of another because after all we are actually accomplishing God's will and purpose and plan? Do we even think that we deserve it all? And if we do, then we have no understanding of grace. Do we treat the birthright frivolously and choose temporary earthly pleasures over eternal promises? Do we not realize that despising the birthright also forfeits the blessing? You do not get one or the other. They are both. To forfeit a birthright from the Father forfeits the blessing from the Father. And God will not bless those whom He has not birthed. Do we treat God more like a best friend than as holy, omnipotent creator God? In other words, do we think that we can continue to act in a manner that despises the birthright, thinking that at some point we can arrive on the scene and get back the blessing, earn the blessing? Calvin, Matthew Henry, Morris, and others make comparisons between Esau's behavior with that of the ten virgins and their oil lamps. With whose, well, I missed a word here, with their oil lamps. And if you remember, there were ten of them. Five said, he's delaying, but so we're going to go get some oil so that we're going to be prepared. The other five said, oh, we're going to have plenty of time, we'll wait. Unfortunately, when he did show, the, the five wise virgins had already refilled their lamps. They were ready. The foolish virgins were left sitting on the bench, so to speak, with empty oil lamps and were denied entrance. Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, gets to come. And it's not the acts that we have done. It is Him and His grace extended. It is not our lineage. It is not the number of degrees we have. It is not our role in the church. I don't care who you are, what you are, what role you have. Nothing gives you entrance to the kingdom apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. And the only way you get that is God said so. Period. You can't add anything to it. So lastly, do we, having realized that others are blessed through their obedience, get angry, throw it all away, and go marry Ishmael. And I submit that this is evidence that we were never his to begin with. The whole key, listen, 
Obey. Repent. Listen. Obey. Repent. Hebrews says, Therefore, let us run the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus says, He who perseveres to the end, he gets the crown. The question, are you persevering? Let's pray. Father, for the praise and honor and glory of your grace, I have delivered what I believe to be your word. Father, may you honor your word. Not me, not this church, not Mitch, not the elders, not anybody. Honor yourself. Bring honor and glory to yourself because of who you are. May your Holy Spirit blow through our minds and hearts, convicting us that we might repent. Also convicting us of the righteousness that we find in Christ Jesus. And Father, may he encourage and empower us to walk in Christ's power. We thank you and we praise you, Father, for allowing us to be in your presence. In the name of Jesus.